a job that is running on like laughter and conversation and sexual tension and food and wine and community, I, I don't think there are many jobs out there like that. Hello and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Jabal, and joining me on the show today is Stephanie Dandler. She's a veteran of the restaurant industry and the author of Sweet Bitter, a really fantastic novel that's just now out in paperback. We'll talk about learning to love wine, sense memory, and why restaurants now have HR departments in just a moment. But first, a thought. I've had the privilege of interviewing quite a few journalists and authors lately, and it's been fascinating to talk to them about wine and language. Figuring out the right words to use in the right setting is part of our job, of course, but we all seem to be struggling with one particular concept, and it's a struggle for sommeliers too. What's the opposite of sweet? Well, in certain contexts, it might be sour, or bitter, or even spoiled. When we talk about wine, though, we usually use the word dry as a contrast. Sweet wines have some discernible amount of residual sugar in them, and dry wines do not. Well, I fucking hate this construct. First of all, because wine is a liquid, and second, because it's endlessly confusing for those who are not in the wine industry. For one thing, the vast majority of wines that are made in the world have no discernible sweetness to them. They can be fruity and ripe tasting, sure, and our brains can easily assume that means they're sugary, but from a technical sense, they're not. Second of all, tannins in wine cause a drying sensation in our mouths, and many people assume that a dry wine means a wine that has a lot of tannins. That at least makes some sense, but it's not really how the term is meant to be used. So, what do we do? Most of the obvious antonyms I mentioned before don't really work in a wine context, so I suggest we take our cue from champagne and refer to wines that have no residual sugar as being brute. It's not perfect, but I think it's the best solution to a tricky problem. Now, if you've got a better idea, drop me a line on Twitter at ZJabal, and we'll see if we can't sort out this linguistic mess. Joining me today on Disgorged is Stephanie Danler. She's the author of the recent novel Sweet Bitter. Stephanie, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, wonderful. Uh, so I want to start with uh, a question that struck me while I was reading the book, which was uh, how much does the sort of, I guess, the, the way in which you test in the book, the sort of the main character learns about wine, is that is that was it your experience too? Because I, I was so struck by it as someone who I think traveled a pretty similar path in a lot of ways. I was struck by just the, the moments where I feel like you really beautifully captured the kind of uh, turning on of a light or the sort of awakening of an interest in a, in a way that felt um, maybe it's not like it's a subject that's been written about a ton, but it just felt so incredibly genuine. Um, and, and so obviously some of, I'm sure some of Tessa's experiences came from your own, some of them were, you know, the work of an, an author, but uh, was that part really personal? Yeah, and it was one of the first parts of the novel that I came up with when I was still working at the restaurant. I I don't think I would have been able to write about it if I hadn't been teaching wine classes for like five years at the point that I left that job and went back to school because seeing it as both the student and the teacher, being able to replicate that experience in your students that was when I saw the system that we have and the similar system that I'm sure you went through and everyone who learns about wine 
Um, and it's the moment when it goes from being jargon to being personal. And that is that epiphany. And it's so gratifying to be on the other end and to be foreseeing these kids. And I guess they're not kids. They were all the people I was managing were like 25 years old. And I guess I was 26, but, um, <laughs> so kids, I got you. Yeah, I, I just call everyone that is a minute younger than me as a child. Um, to watch them go through the motions and then all of a sudden understand it for themselves. And I can't teach them that language. No one can. The WSET, any wine course that you take, um, it, it is your personal like palette. And it's all senses and memory and experiences. I love that. Yeah, and I thought yeah. that was a really beautifully used sort of trick in in the book because it's always been my experience that many of my uh, most powerful associations with wine have all been you know sense memory and and that's obviously a lot of what it taps into. And I thought you know how do, how did you kind of approach writing about that and that experience, understanding that your presumably audience wasn't only going to be sommeliers, that people were going to read that and not have had that exact experience in many cases. And maybe they've had some sort of sense memory experiences in other contexts, but, but wouldn't have necessarily uh, sat there and had that experience with wine. How did, you, how did you kind of approach writing about that in a way that, that was accessible to people who aren't in that line of work? Well, I mean, that's the benefit of tests, right? Having the new girl, I'm using air quotes here, having the new girl be your eyes, ears, and palate in this world allows everyone to approach the novel as a novice. Whereas if I had been writing it from Simone's point of view the entire time, I mean, her language is inaccessible to to most people. And then she's kind of the treat for people that do know, she and Howard, for people that do know about wine. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing the world from the point of view of a total novice who has only ever drank yellowtail from the liquor store, if that. And so I thought that it was a, I thought that it was a lesson, right? It is learning how to separate the components of wine and learning how to look at the map and learning how, what terroir means. They're kind of these basic lessons, things that I had taught so many times that I marked the book with until you have a very confident test at the end, knowing the white blends from the Rhone have Viognier and understanding the different, um, the different crews of Beaujolais. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fun progression. And, and, I, and I, in many ways you kind of echo that throughout the, the book with, um, you know, not just with wine knowledge, but just sort of Tessa's growing confidence in her ability to do what is a, a very difficult job, especially for someone who's never done it before. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, the the, the book is so, so inside, uh, not just restaurants generally, but a very specific restaurant and a very well-known restaurant, um, you know, which is obviously, I don't know if you, have you been to the new Union Square Cafe or is that not on your, uh, on your list yet? Oh my God, no, it's incredible. I went um, the second week of January, I was in the city and my editor and I went and it was divine, just so much better. And it feels almost sacrilegious because that the former space is so close to my heart, but better, better, better space, better food in just pitch perfect. It was really exciting. Very cool. And I saw some people I worked with, which is always that that's like the best thing about a Danny Meyer place is that he's he retains his staff forever. 
Yeah, definitely. There are there are lifers, and that's that's obviously a, a hallmark of uh, not just a good restaurant, but of uh, a well-run company. Um, so I guess so. I guess putting the again putting it in sort of uh, setting the book in a in a very recognizable restaurant to pretty much anyone who's spent time in New York, or even if you haven't, frankly, um, it's a it's such an iconic restaurant. You know, did I? I, I thought that was a really um, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a really interesting choice, though that that it wasn't a more generic that you didn't go with a more sort of generic New York restaurant. Was it always the plan that it was going to be Union Square Cafe and very recognizably so? So it's modeled on Union Square Cafe, but I've been in the restaurant. I was in the restaurant industry for 16 years. I got my first hostessing job when I was 15 and I've never worked anywhere else. Um, And so by not naming it, I had so much liberty to have it look like Union Square Cafe but to put in all 16 years of my experiences, whether a chef threw my shoes away when I was 17, um, working at a coffee shop in Boulder, or the part where Tess is tasting sherry. We didn't have sherries at Union Square Cafe back when I worked there, but I worked in Spanish wine for a million years, and so it's a passion of mine. So I, I really got to funnel in the best of the experiences and the ones that would serve the fictional story. Um, However, to answer your question fairly, it was always going to be a restaurant that had an ethic behind it, uh, which is what I think of when I think of Union Square Cafe, is that Danny developed a new brand of hospitality, but it was based on care and compassion and his idea of the 51 percenter and his tenants, which um, begin with taking care of each other as opposed to taking care of the guest. Those sort of switches, I think, revolutionized the restaurant industry. I don't think, I know they did. But that's the kind of place, well, it was where I was hired when I was 22, but that's the kind of place that makes you fall in love with the industry Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. see it as a viable profession. Versus I could have had her work at Blue Water Grill in Balthazar and there probably would have been more drugs and more sex and it would have been really exciting. But you don't have the same level of professionalism at those other restaurants. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And, and obviously the sort of the influence that Danny Meyer has had on the restaurant industry is is it's cool that it's still felt even, you know, decades after he opened his first restaurant. I wonder this is a, a little bit of a divergence or a step away from the book exactly but but now i assume perhaps no longer working in the restaurant industry do you is there do you miss it is it do you still get the nightmares because um that's always been my my question for myself is when i do eventually well possibly leave the industry to what extent will i regret that choice are you on the floor somewhere do you work on the on the floor i didn't get to google you (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm a sommelier at a restaurant in in seattle oh excellent um you the nightmares will stop, but you will miss it. I, I don't know. I, it's been two years since I stopped. My last position was a server while I was in graduate school at a restaurant called Bouvette, which I had been a general manager and the beverage director for um, a restaurant group in New York before that. So it was a strange demotion to be a server, um, but I loved it, even though it was like 4 a.m. and so physically demanding at like 32 years old. You're like, my body doesn't want to do this. I miss it all the time. I think I will be involved 
in restaurants again. My editors hate it when I say that, but I, I do think that some people are lifers and I found so much joy in it. And I hope that comes through in the book. It can be really toxic and it can be a trap, but that's any workplace, any industry. I like exchanging energy and, and the, the laughter, a job that is running on like laughter and conversation and sexual tension and food and wine and community. I, I don't think there are many jobs out there like that. And I think, you know, for me, one of the big parts that I've thought about a lot is that one of the big appeals is that you end up, especially if you're working in a relatively nice restaurant, you end up with sort of this real dichotomy between the sort of uh, outward facing, the sort of the guest facing persona that you take on when you're on the floor. And then the sort of whether it's uh, shit talking or gossiping or um, any of the other, you know, joke, you know, cracking jokes, whatever, all the things that happen kind of just off stage. Um and I think that that sort of ability to occupy two different roles in a given work evening or whatever is definitely one of the things for me that I think will be hard to hard to give up. And, and I mean, I don't ever see myself sitting behind a desk and, and spending, you know, 40, 40 plus hours a week doing that. But but it is. Yeah, there's something about it that's just infectious in a, in a way. I do love that high low that you're talking about, that you can go out on the floor and be talking, um, talking to people about their vacation houses in Vail and you're halfway occupying that world. And then you get back into the kitchen and it's just like shallow shit talking, like who had sex with who and like, where are we going to go and who was drunkest last night? Um, I, I love that. That always felt very New York to me, but it's any city. I love the term, the like, as soon as you go through the kitchen, you're talking Spanglish. And there's this kind of like, I mean, it's interesting because you don't want to like encourage things that HR wouldn't approve of. But there's this kind of like Wild West like feeling once you get behind those doors. Yeah, there's no doubt that um, HR in my company is, let's say, uh, aware of what goes on, but not aware um, you know, you just kind of have to accept that there's some element of the restaurant industry that's never, I don't think, hopefully, maybe never changes. And that doesn't mean yeah. that it can't be a more professional workplace. And, and I'm really fortunate to to work in a restaurant that's extremely professional and, and that it can't be respectful and open to people of all sorts of backgrounds and things like that. But there is also an element of, you know, it's a stressful job. And sometimes with that stress comes ways to relieve that stress. And sometimes those are less than... Um, savory in some cases. Mm-hmm. I do think there's something about the restaurant industry becoming more visible in the past 10 years, right? The book is set in 2006. And Danny always had um, an incredible HR department. And that's a crazy professional restaurant group. But we it wasn't a visible industry for many decades before that as far as they, it was mostly cash you paid off the health inspector in the back alley there was this kind of criminal element there was no like n- nowhere to file a sexual harassment complaint but then we have these books about the industry and then we have reality television shows about the industry and now there's just all restaurants are are super above board i find 
Yeah, it's, it's definitely more so in the time that in I've the, been in the industry. It's definitely that that change has has happened to some extent. And yeah, whether it's uh, you know whether it's sort of some books, some TV shows, some just general yeah, cultural awareness. And that's actually a really interesting thought because I, I feel like one of the interesting elements of um, I guess the restaurant industry and it's it's sort of happened in stages is that there's been sort of a progression of. Uh, cele- you know, sort of a culture of celebrity, and obviously it started with chefs, and then I think you know you sort of saw it in a lot of cases with bartenders, and whether that was in restaurants or bars or whatever. And now, obviously, sort of sommeliers are having their moment. You know, do you, do you as someone who's worked in the in the industry, but maybe is wasn't uh, wasn't sort of famous until you wrote a book? Uh, how do you look at that? Like, is it weird to like uh, to work on the floor with or to be around people who are like famous for basically doing the same job that you did? No, I. I, you know, I've never watched anything like there's a, is it a movie on Netflix called Psalm that everyone has been telling me to watch for like a million years? I've never seen Top Chef. I read Kitchen Confidential very late in the game. So I feel like I don't have an awareness of that sort of celebrity culture, even though I, I know very much that it exists. But I had the privilege of working and being around, you know, getting to meet Thomas Keller or Gabrielle Hamilton or working for Jody Williams at Bouvet or seeing Danny on a regular basis. And you always knew that they were superstars in their field and rightly so. So yes, I told, I was totally starstruck. They were not like me. They're like the best of the best. (laughs) So, um, I'm curious though, you know, obviously now sort of, um, stepped away from the restaurant industry, at least uh, temporarily, perhaps. Um, do you still kind of stay uh, focused on wine? Do you do you still like taste regularly? Do you, I presumably drink wine regularly. What do you what are you excited by right now? It's a great question. I'm actually like, once you step out of the industry, you lose so much access. Um, not being able to buy wine at cost has been one <laughs> yeah. of the great disappointments of my new life. I'm so confused by retail prices and I can't afford to drink the wines that I deeply love. And I, it's something I had never thought about. I worked at um, this wine store part-time on the weekends while I was in graduate school called Uva. Um, and it's on Bedford Avenue in Williamsburg and it focused on natural biodynamic wines. And those were the best drinking days of my life. We would go in on a bottle, like the staff would go in on a bottle of Solos or grower champagne or something just ridiculous and extravagant and drink it at 4 p.m. as a, as a treat. And those days are over. Yeah, <laughs> they really yeah. are. I'm back to trying to find an incredible bottle of wine for less than $20. So, of course, I'm going to the satellite regions, um, everything in the Loire Valley, some interesting stuff in um, the Languedoc and things like in Spain, a lot of Monsants and Prior, or like outside of Priorat. Basically, you take the like expensive region and you go right next door and you look for someone that seems to really care about what they're doing. Yeah, and uh, Sicily, I was just in last year, I wrote an article for Travel and Leisure, and the wines there are incredible, but again, I'm getting priced out of them as far as house, as far as everyday bottles go. 
Yeah, it's true. The the not being able to buy at cost. I feel like I feel like you gotta you could probably find some connections. It's not that hard to make that happen uh, if you've got some uh, some ins in the industry somewhere. But uh, but it is true. I, I, I that when if and when that day comes for me, it's going to be very sad. Um, I'm curious. So when you were in Sicily, were you were you looking more at like my, wines on Mount Etna, like Norella Mascalese, or, or or like what were you what what there, because Sicily is a place I really want to go. Uh, what there was it that you that you really kind of were struck by? Sicily to me is these two iconoclastic winemakers that I wanted to incorporate into the article I wrote, and I ended up not having the space for it. But it was Frank Cornelisa and his, which his wines are insane and so weird and volatile, um, and Ariana Ocanti. And so I wasn't on a wine trip per se but I was looking for those bottles within Sicily and I was um, cooking with this incredible old woman called, her name is Giovanna Tornabene and she ran a crazy successful restaurant and then like out in the mountains in Sicily and she won two James Beard award for, awards for her cookbook and I was cooking with her. I had become friends with her on my first trip to Sicily and I went back for travel and leisure. And so I, what I wanted to see was this kind of blend between the, the old style of Sicily and the kind of up and comers that were pushing boundaries a little bit. Um, and so that was, it was more based around those producers than those grapes. I mean, Frappato is really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I like mm-hmm. anything that can is lighter bodied and retains its acid generally so uh obviously you've had a chance to do at least some traveling and and some exploring of wine regions what if there was a place you haven't been yet that's at the top of your list what might that be Mm, that's a great question i want to go to the val d'osta in italy way 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 up at the top um they do a clone of nebbiolo that's really gorgeous when blanking on the our Pepe is that the name yeah. of the wine? Our Pepe in- is like the 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 one like iconic in um, yeah Valtellina. Yeah, I would love to do northern 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 Italy at this point. Um, I was very fortunate when I worked for um, a restaurant group run by Moni Dawes, who owns Tiapol Tinto Fino, and um, she owned a couple other tapas restaurants in New York City. We went to Spain twice a year. And so I am, I just got back from Spain a couple of days ago and I, that is, I know that the wine of that country and I know the map of that country, it's like imprinted on me, but Italy, not so much France, a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with France right now. I'm curious about Italy. Yeah. It's funny. I grew up mostly with Italian wine and, and Italian restaurants. And so it's almost the opposite. I mean, I've not spent anywhere near as much time there as I'd like, and and definitely northern Italy. I was in Piedmont in November, which is uh, incredible and definitely worth uh, visiting. But uh, but the rest of the northern part is also super fascinating to me, and and have not had a chance to spend much time there. But that's the thing about wine, right? Like you, pretty much anywhere you pick, there's always going to be something interesting. I mean, assuming you pick somewhere that makes decent wine. Um, so you're in California now, right? I am, but I am bouncing all around. Um, And that is just the way my life will be until kind of promotion ends. I toured for off and on for eight months last year. And before that was living 
Um, I traveled for like a year living out of a suitcase and going back and forth to New York and I'm trying to settle in California. That is the goal. (laughs) So you're going to have to start uh, sort of brushing up if you're not already super familiar with California wine, which is obviously a broad category, but, um, but I feel like it's one of those interesting transitions for, for being sort of East coast. and, And if you're dealing with American wine, either it's sort of some stuff from around there, or I feel like it's, it's kind of like a lot of the, the bigger names on the West Coast, and and then you're going to get out here and you go, oh, like there's all this other stuff going on. I know, and I'm woefully uneducated, and it's very difficult to look at people who are excited about wine, the average consumer, my friends, and tell them that you don't drink, I don't drink any California wine. I can't remember if I've ever bought a bottle, ever. Um, And that is terrible, and I would like to remedy it. Yeah, it's definitely uh, it's definitely an interesting kind of uh, thing because I feel like there's the, I, the more of it I taste, and and that I would say California in, in particular, but but some other stuff too. The more you sort of see how wide a, a range of styles there are, and we get sort of very um, as, as psalms and whatnot tend to sort of focus a lot on um, if you're not in that area, kind of on the big name, like I said, regions and and the styles that are kind of you know kind of classic and if you're taking tests ones that might appear on a test and then you kind of i I remember um i was at a actually at a napa valley like class not that long ago and they pulled out one of the wines they pulled out i mean it was a lot of chardonnay and cabernet i mean unsurprisingly but one of the wines they pulled out was this uh grignolino which is like some super strange red wine from italy that someone has planted in a little bit of acreage in napa and why the hell they haven't ripped it out and put something more profitable in i can't tell you but um it was super weird, and it was like this crazy, like light-bodied, aromatic, like almost like Gewürztraminer esque, but in a red perfumed wine. And I was like, "This is so strange." And I would have never, like, you know, I would have just if you if you put that wine in front of me and asked me where that was from, I think Napa Valley might have literally been the last wine region I guessed. So there you yeah, go. I know that stuff exists, and I've tasted it before, and that's very exciting. I need to get that book, The New California. What's that called? Yeah. The New Cal- yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's on my it's on my list of uh, of things to read too. Which sadly I don't get through nearly as many as I'd like. But uh, very cool. Yeah, and and uh, you know it's, it is one of those things that's exciting about um, I think especially whether you're in California or kind of up and down the West Coast where you're in a place that where there's you know wine being made nearby and then also obviously still kind of tremendous access to the rest of the world of wine. I, I do like the you know just selfishly. Uh, here you know i like the the sort of um, ability that gives me to get to know people who make wine for a living as well as people who sell wine for a living because i think those two angles on things are are distinct that's not you don't have the same mindset exactly about wine if you make it than if you um you know sell it whatever whether you're selling it as a distributor or a retail shop or certainly on the floor of a restaurant i agree yeah it's incredible very cool and i love to take advantage of it (laughs) so uh have you have you decided on a second book? Is that is that in the works? I mean, I know that could be a very uh, a very personal or let's say classified or whatever question, but uh, if you can answer it, yeah, um, I am. I have a second book with Knopf, and it is nonfiction. I it does not have to do with sweet bitter at all which is the first question that everyone asks. But I write personal essays and I've produced some nonfiction in the few years um, that I've been publishing. And so that is what it will be. And I think 
it's a little bit about addiction and recovery and how to live with damage, but I'm sure there will be lots of wine and food in it because I really don't know how to take that lens off of the way I see the world. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good description because I think that was when I first, just even the first, uh, I don't know, first chapter or, or whatever, first 20 pages, 30 pages of Sweet Bitter, I, I was struck by it because I thought, well, here's someone who, uh, you know, despite maybe different some different life experiences and whatnot, like sees the world through a very similar lens. And I think if you if you're in this industry, it's not uncommon to have that kind of perspective. But it's not. I feel like it's not a, a perspective that I see in in literature all that often. And and it's you know maybe becoming a little bit more so. But but there aren't you know there, there's certainly plenty of people who write novels that have food and wine in them or that write about even that experience. But but I think there's something, there was something about the book, and I, I still haven't yet figured out exactly how to put words to it, but there was something about it that resonated with me in that way. And, and some of it is, I think, you know, you and I are of a similar age and have some similar types of work experience. And so there's that element of like, well, of course, I know what it's like to stay out super late and then have to drag my ass to brunch the next morning and, you know, get an hour and a half of what you might generously term sleep. And like, you know, it's, <laughs> it's just like, that's, that's a thing that not, that is not exactly unique to your eye, but it's an experience that when you've had it, you sort of share that commonality. But I think it was more like your, your, the curiosity and the, and the sort of um, way of looking at learning about uh, wine and food in particular that I found. And obviously, you know, there's some amount of which, you know, you're, you're an author, so who knows? I think there's some amount of that that may be um, fictionalized, but it definitely it felt true. So if it's not if it's not true, then you don't have to uh, burst the bubble for me. No, it it is. I mean, Tessa Course is heightened. She's more naive and innocent and blank than any human being could be. But I think what I really wanted was that food and wine so often are details in their kind of background scenery in a novel, and they're not the mode through which the story is told. Like, they're not essential to the narrative. And every single moment of Tess's growth, and I don't think she grows so much, and that was important to me, that it really be kind of micro-movements, but every single moment of Tess's growth is linked to food and wine. And that sort of, that is, it's the lens through which you view the world. And I think that the restaurant industry and the wine industry, they they attract what I call in my head, poet souls, people that are highly sensitive and very creative and um, imaginative and that, and sometimes philosophical. And so I've met so many of those like-minded people on this journey, whether they're winemakers or baristas. And I wanted to, to show that, yeah, we don't see it a lot in fiction. Excellent. Well, I mean, like I said, I think, I think you definitely accomplished that goal, at least from, from where I stand. So, um, yeah, it was awesome. Stephanie, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I know you've got lots of things on your, uh, on your agenda and, uh, look, look forward to the, uh, the new book when it does come out and is sweet better in in paperback now or is it still just in hardcover april 4th it will be in paperback and i will be coming to every single city in the united states on a lovely tour Excellent. so <laughs> well maybe i'll so, catch you in seattle then yeah absolutely i don't know the dates yet but yes i will be there <laughs> Excellent. Well, more living out of a suitcase for you 
I know. It's lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much to Stephanie Danler for joining me on Disgorged. You can find Sweet Bitter in paperback in bookstores nationwide or online as well. And you can find her on Twitter at SMDanler. As for me, I'm on Twitter at ZJabal and on Instagram at Disgorged Wine. Thanks so much for listening to Disgorged and cheers. Ha <laughs> ha.